Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jim Bruno. It's uh, August 18th, 2023. We're at Domain Willamette. Uh, and uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Rich, thank you for the service to our industry. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, first question is why wine? The, um, the, my first exposure to wine was uh, from my dad. And he brought home uh, for dinner a bottle of wine that he shared with us at the dinner table. But I'll never forget the image of my dad at the end of the table holding up this bottle of wine saying, someday grapevines will cover Oregon. And it was Richard Summer who had hired my dad to do his legal work to start a Hillcrest winery and, and to navigate the kind of the OLCC um, and, and obtain a winery license uh, that, 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 you know, their system of bureaucracy was a little rusty mm-hmm. since, since winery licenses had been obtained for Vidifer Winery for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how it started for, for my brother and I. I was 10, my brother was 12. And we really liked that wine that, the, that my dad shared a little bit of taste with at the table. And, and so we... Uh, we snitched the mom's frozen Concord grape juice out of the freezer because we thought we'd get our, our, a hand at, at that. My folks didn't believe in television, but they did encourage us to read the encyclopedias that they had. So we read them from cover to cover. And of course, there's a chapter on fermentation in those encyclopedias. So that's how we got started. You know, the part of the story that I haven't told before is... Um, is my brother actually was, you know, it started there, but my brother was really the ringleader here. And, and so he, has, he became quite interested in wine and over time got better and better at it. Um, till we got to the point where we'd hide the wine in the crawl spaces underneath the house. My brother, after he graduated from high school, went on to, um, at that time, it was called the University of Dijon. And he... To keep me company, he bought, he got a little yellow lab puppy that he named Dijon and gave it to me uh, when he went off to the university. And so that was my first uh, experience at learning about how to pronounce Dijon, but also about, um, you know, my my brother's interest. And I don't know if he met Professor uh, Raymond Bernard there or not. I lost my brother to a injuries uh, due to a traffic accident when he was young. But that was really what got me interested in wine, was, was my, was kind of dabbling in it, using essentially, you know, glass milk jugs and aquarium equipment for fermenters. And, um, and, and also my dad's just passion for what he thought the future would be for Oregon. Well, that's such an interesting, an interesting place to start. So do you, what made him so passionate? What made him so assured that this is what was, this is where Oregon was going? Oh, my dad was just a, a 
champion of Oregon. And you know, he was a small business attorney. And so, um, you know, he, uh, he fought in World War II. And, and of course, many um, in our military learned a lot about wine and European wines uh, as a result of being in the, in the, in that, in the European theater. So that was actually, I think, how America really got a, an awareness of wine, was those returning, uh, you know, uh, GIs. And so, uh, but I, he was just passionate about Oregon and believed that Oregon could do many things. So tell me about uh, getting ready to graduate high school. Uh, first of all, wh where, where were you born and raised? Roseburg. Uh, raised out on the North Umpqua. Um, and that's, of course, my, my family dentist, uh, a guy named Werner Anderson, Andy Anderson, his nickname Andy. He was our family dentist. And he uh, loved wine. And so every time I'd go in to see the dentist, he'd show me his collection of corkscrews. He was quite serious about wine. He became a state legislator. And of course, uh, knew my dad well, knew Scott Henry well. Um, and was the author of, of the very first legislation to create a foundation for the Oregon wine industry. And, um, and that, that's later how I came into the industry in a more serious way, is when, as a very young, you know, small business lobbyist, I was asked by our members, which included Richard Summer and Scott Henry, and um, I re I'll never forget that call that I had. It was a conference call with Richard and, and Scott and um, Dick um, Ponzi. And they called me uh, at my office in Salem, and they said, you know, we're, we need legislation to help build this industry. We need funding for research at, uh, at, at Oregon State University, and we need money for promotion. And we're thinking about doing something with the, uh, you know, the Oregon Department of Agriculture and forming an Oregon Wine Advisory Board and using that as the vehicle. And so that's how it started for me in a professional way. We'll come back to that in a second, but tell me about as you're getting ready to graduate high school, uh, what, were your, what were your plans at that point? What, how did you decide where you were going to school and what were you thinking about doing with your life at that point? I had the great fortune of going to Oxford University on other people's money. And it was at Oxford where um, I learned a lot more about wine, even though I was young. Um, they had a different attitude toward wine and alcohol in England than the United States did, United States did at that time. But the, but the teaching style and the interaction with the professors was much different, where you spent not only your days but your evenings with them. And in the teaching environments were um, very relaxed and formal. And so it wasn't, um, you know, the, day, the teaching day wasn't finished uh, when you heard the popping of corks. So I got to taste some really wonderful Burgundies when I was uh, at Oxford. And then later um, um, went to the Willamette University and then uh, the Congress got unhappy with the college students. They ended the college deferment. And uh, I needed to, um, I, needed to, I got chosen right through a lottery to serve. And, and so I joined the Army ROTC, which took me to the University of Oregon. And, um, and then after, 
that, um, got a chance to go back and work in Washington, D.C., and then come back to Willamette Graduate School. And at Willamette Graduate School, I um, had these remarkable professors who loved wine. And, we, and so I was part of a, a small wine tasting group with one of my professors, my uh, accounting professor, Earl Luttrell. And he's passed now. Uh, but his son-in-law works at the winery, and his daughter used to be my human resources director. Earl Luttrell was one of my very first investors in Willamette Valley Vineyards. He served on my very first advisory board for Willamette Valley Vineyards. And when we were back, this, and those, this is a long time ago, it's back in 1978, we'd go down to the, we'd meet at 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, Earl Luttrell, my accounting professor, the dean of the college, uh, Steve Archer, um, another professor in organizational uh, behavior, um, Steve Mazur, and sometime, uh, sometimes Bruce Gates would come, who was, uh, who was the, uh, he just tortured all of us with his uh, statistics. Um, uh, anyway, we would meet there at 7 o'clock in the morning at the dairy lunch, and we would pull out napkins out of that dispenser and started making notes about the business plan for Willamette Valley Vineyards. That's how I got, you know, really the help to, to, um, to kind of better plan this idea. And of course, at, at uh, Willamette Graduate School, one of my room, my college mates was uh, Betty O'Brien, who uh, had a passion for wine, and um, she, you know, talked her dad into letting her plant vines on the property there. So we planted in the same year, 1983. So that so that's just a little bit about um, how um, things kind of connected. So you mentioned you're working as a small business lobbyist uh, when when you had the kind of the faithful phone conversation with some of the wine growers. Uh, at that point, what was your awareness of the Oregon wine industry and and where where did it need to go? What was your role going to be in helping it move forward? Well, I knew I knew um, when they called me to ask for my help even prior to that time. I was going to um, these meetings that Don Byard organized. Now, Don Byard worked at the Oregon Department of Transportation. And he and his wife, Carolyn, would um, organize this Salem Growers meeting. And actually, Betty went. Betty and Dick, uh, her husband, who's now passed, um, went to these meetings. And that's where I met uh, the Castiles. Um, and a number of other growers uh, that ended up being kind of the core of this crazy idea while I'm at Valley Vineyards. And that was back in 1978, uh, 1979, uh, when, we, when that first got started. And I remember um, the Castiles at Bethel Heights would uh, put on seminars where you could come out and sit in their tractor barn and learn about how to select the right slopes, how to plant the vines, how to care for the vines. Um, they had a remarkable impact on the growth of our industry. Uh, and, and of course, Pat and Marilyn, their spouses, Ted and Terry Castile. Um, and I don't know if people really know the impact that they had because they were the force behind the Grape Growers Guide 
in writing, you know, getting the chapters written, getting the thing put together, because it was the Grape Grower's Guide that served as that informational foundation for, you know, how to do what we needed to do. And I remember having that book, uh, you know, it's kind of a paperback book, uh, booklet, folded open on the ground where I was, able, I was looking at the illustrations and looking at my little vines to see, you know, what, what I needed to do next. So, um, um, you know, the Oregon wine industries had very modest beginnings. And, and you think about the key role these people played. You know, when we went to the Oregon legislature, the big challenge I had was how do you convince lawmakers, you know, that this wasn't just a hobby? How did we, so we, we went to the Economic Development uh, Committee because we needed to have hearings on, was this a good idea? Should we really have a, does the state have an interest in creating um, uh, some form of research and promotion for the industry? And the committee administrator was a fellow named Joe Alexa. You interviewed him. And um, Joe and I worked hand in hand to write a white paper on uh, the potential for the Oregon wine industry. And I'll bet you very few people know of how important Joe Alexis' role was in, in, in creating an environment in the legislature where the legislation would be positively considered. So yeah, there's, there's probably a lot of stories I could tell you about people. At that point then, um with the, how much support did the legislature throw at that time, and what was the kind of the initial? How did it initially show itself? Was it the Oregon State? Was it something else? Like how how did they initially support the industry at that point? Well, we did something that was pretty controversial, actually. Um, the we did two things. We went to the legislature and we said um, we're willing to tax ourselves, and at the time it was twenty five dollars a ton for growers, which was the highest in the world. And that got people's attention, that we were willing to step up as an industry and say, yes, tax us ourselves. So this serve as the funding base for this new Oregon Wine Advisory Board. But the other piece of it was a little controversial, was what was nicknamed the Gallo tax. Because what we said was, we said, let's increase the tax on wine two cents, from 65 to 67 cents and have the two cents dedicated by law to uh, the Oregon Wine Advisory Board for uh, viticultural and analogical research and for promotion. And that wasn't easy getting passed. But, the, but people, a conservative Republican like Andy Anderson in Roseburg, um, combined with a liberal Democrat from the district around Portland State University, Tom Mason, uh, we put together a, a a, a diverse political, um, uh, you know, uh, force that uh, where we gathered up enough votes in spite of the very large national wineries trying to stop the legislation because they didn't like the idea. Because what we did in that two cent tax is we exempted the first forty thousand gallons of production of any winery who made less than 100,000 gallons, which was all of us at the time, <laughs> right? So basically, the two cents was going to get paid by somebody else. <laughs> That's the best kind of tax. <laughs> That's how it first started. 
And what were the impacts you saw from that as, as that money started to come in? What were the impacts to the industry? Well, I mean, Oregon State University really stepped up. And, um, you know, Barney Watson from Oregon State University was extremely valuable in coaching us, you know, into how to improve what we were doing. Um, and, and, and Oregon State University continues to play an extremely important role. Uh, one of the leaders at Oregon State University, a fellow named Bill Bogus, who's now retired, um, again, another one of those probably un, un, unspoken heroes, mm -hmm. um, made sure that the industry's interests were being looked after at Oregon State. The, you know, the thing that, um, if you look at one of the big tipping points for quality in our industry, it, it really relates to um, plant material. Now, under federal law, it's unlawful, of course, to bring plant material into the United States and into the state of Oregon without it going through um, a federally authorized quarantine procedure. Well, the only one that's for uh, this type of you know, um, plant material was uh, UC Davis. And uh, we wanted to grow our industry. We knew we had a problem. We knew that the vines that came up from California must have been altered. And now we know more about how they got altered in California. But they were not ripening in the cool climate of the Willamette Valley. They do better now, obviously, as time has changed. But back then, in the late 70s, um, we were struggling with getting those. And, and, and really, the, the, the vines would perform very well in warm years. But that's not what we got all the time right? in the Willamette Valley. So what we needed was we needed uh, plant material from directly from, uh, uh, from Burgundy. Well, the thing I think that has served the industry so well is one of its core values that I think distinguishes Oregon winemakers and our, and, and our state. And that was the Oregon winemakers, when we started the industry, we said, let's do this right. Let's not make the mistake the California winemakers made. Let's make sure that we respect French geographic designations. Let's make sure that when the consumer is buying a Pinot Noir from Oregon, they're really getting Pinot Noir from Oregon. So I think it was 1977 that um, th we went to the Oregon uh, Liquor Control uh, Commission Board and, and got administrative rules adopted. One of our leaders, uh, David Adelsheim, played a big role in this, along with Dickie Rath and se several others, arguing that um, it was in the state's interest and in our industry's interest to make sure we, we, regulate our, we are regulated with respect to truth and labeling. Um, well, the French, of course, saw this and thought, well, maybe these, maybe these Oregonians are different than the Americans that they're used to. And so they helped us. And so I think that um, respecting French law had a lot to do with their willingness to, to understand the issues we were facing and help us. 
the very first, some of the very first plant material that came into Oregon came through uh, Oregon State University. We couldn't get it through UC Davis because UC Davis says, you know, we've got enough. We don't really need, need any more. So the UC Davis was not willing to be our conduit. So professor, it was a, uh, it was uh, Ron, I think it's Ron Cameron, um, who is plant pathologist, Oregon State University at the time. He filed for a, a to get a license from, from the federal government so he could import this plant material. And, and, had, and, and he had to do it. In other words, it had to be a person. Mm -hmm. um, and so Oregon State, by becoming that conduit for plant material, was, was, uh, gave us one of the biggest tipping points uh, of success in our history. And then it followed on uh, Professor Heather Bell, who also made sure, so it wasn't just Ron, it was, it was others who followed him that made sure that we had this supply of, of plant material coming in. And then of course we talked the governor into going there to help us encourage the French to send us more plant material. And that's where I met um, uh, Robert Drouin. And it was, uh, he, you know, he said, uh, let's make sure you get the 667 and the 777 of clones. And we requested those as well. So those are some of the latter ones that came in of the Dijon clones. And look at what, how much difference they make in the quality of our Pinot Noir. So, so Oregon State, um, I mean, I could, I could spend hours talking to you about the role Oregon State has played, but that's just an example. So you're obviously, you're, you're involved in the industry already at this point. What was the impetus for you to have, start having those conversations about starting Willamette Valley Vineyards? What made you want to be on this side of the industry as well? Well, when I, I took my young interest in wine and, um, and also I think the kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of these young uh, immigrating winemakers um, like Bill Fuller, uh, who came up from Louis Martini, um, I, you know, inspired me. And so I, I started looking for land actually, and it was like 1979, finally, you know, finally secured this land in 1981 and then began planting in 1983. And of course, at that time, it seemed, well, well you know, David called his winery Adelsheim and Dick his Eve Rath. And, and then Bill Fuller picked the name of the valley, which people couldn't pronounce. Uh, so I thought, well, um, I'll pick Willamette Valley. And it was before the valley was recognized as an ABA. And before the, I think the federal system was uh, put in place. So that's kind of how it started. It started very small and I was gonna make wine in, in the garage. In fact, uh, I didn't even have a place to put the tractor. I lived on the second floor of an apartment building. So I bought the tractor before I actually was able to get the tractor out on the land because I had to wait for the, the land to become available. It was under a um, sealed bid auction, which I was confident I was going to win. And so I parked the tractor out of Joe Alexis house and, and he used it on his vineyard until I was able to, to move it over. So it's very modest beginnings.
very modest. You talked about obviously the idea of, of investment and a, a, diff a different a different approach to starting a winery rather than uh, rather than being a single person or a single family having investors from the beginning. So tell me about the initial initial investors and the initial sort of business plan as you got it started. Well, you know, like Joe or like uh, Joe Alexa or like Bill Nelson, others that I worked with back then, and that we were. Um, you know, I was working several jobs just to figure out how to pay the mortgage on this piece of land that I bought and, and also pay the loans for the tractor and the trellis material. But I, but I thought, um, you know, there's a lot of other wine enthusiasts like me who believe in Oregon and the future of Oregon. I thought, well, what if we could get them together um, and, and kind of form a, and it, uh, kind of a Oregon wine enthusiasts co-op in a way, pool our resources. And I got the idea from something we did in, at the University of Oregon when I was at school there. And so I went down to the, um, the uh, corporations division and I knew the director and I, told, I asked the director, I said, what do you think of this? Said, How, you know, can I go ahead and form a, a company to do this? And she said, oh, what a great idea. You'd have all these wine lovers who would invest in your winery and would tell others and buy the wine. She said, you know, Jim, it's, you can't do that in Oregon. It's against the law. You can only sell stock um, to people who are qualified investors. And I said, well, what's, who's a qualified investor? Well, they have to make over $250,000 a year. Uh, she told me this in the early 1980s. They have to have over $2 million in, in uh, equity uh, or in asset value, free and clear, that doesn't include the equity in their home, furnishings or automobile. And I said, I don't know anybody like that. And she says, well, you can have all those investors you want. Now, the unqualified investors, you can have 10 a year and no more than 35. So I said, well... If I, if I got an investment of, let's say, $2,000 from someone, that wouldn't add up to very much money. And she says, well, I'm sorry. There's just, it's a not, your idea is a great idea. It's just not lawful. Well, as I was leaving her office there, she said, you know, she says, you know, you could do it legally if you were a public company. But she says, you know, that's not. Nah, that's not going to work. And, and, and she was right, really. Um, you know, people who went public, you know, were generally mature businesses that had earnings and had considerable economic uh, stature in their particular market uh, that would get, would get the interest of underwriters. So what I did was, I was, remember, a small business lobbyist. So what I did was I started taking apart the uh, federal code that dealt with uh, securities, the sale of securities, and got a, an attorney uh, that I met, um, Mark Dodson of Lindsay Hart. Uh, I said, because uh, he was a wine lover, and um, I worked with him and uh, Senator Ron Wyden um, on some a bunch of different issues. And, and uh, he said, well, maybe, Jim, I can help you with this. And he says, but you know, I got to talk my partners into taking this on to help you. So you got to give me at least something to get some kind of a retainer. And um, he says, well, 
uh, I said, well, what would that be? He says, oh, something just nominal, like $5,000. So I went and told this story to another one of my friends uh, who's an attorney in Salem, Gordon Hanna. Gordon Hanna took out his, he's my age. He and I went to the university together. He took out of his checkbook and he wrote me a $5,000 check. And he says, Jim, he says, you give this to Mark Dotson to start Mark's firm on the securities work you need. And so we went to the SEC, nobody had ever done it before, to get the SEC talked into doing a self-underwritten public stock offering. And that is how uh, crowdfunding started. That's how it started. It's true. Crowdfunding before it was crowdfunding. And, um, and there, there's, I mean, I could talk for hours about how that all transpired. But it's a, another example of how, you know, wine enthusiasts who believe in Oregon, um, you know, took risks to see if this would work. So before we get into the starting of the company, I'm curious about your sort of personal wine education at that point. What, what did you know about wine? What did you know about making wine? And what were you sort of thinking about as your role for this, this growing company? Oh, my heavens. I mean, I knew I liked drinking it. Um, and the first time I grew vines was when I planted them on, on our own property. And the first time that I made wine commercially was there at Willamette Valley Vineyards under the tutelage of Dr. Robert McRitchie, uh, who's now passed. And Bob, um, he was the winemaker at Sokol Blosser. And um, when I started the winery, he said, well, you know, it's about time I did some consulting. So he left Sokol Blosser, and my neighbor, uh, Joe Maduri, lent me his fifth wheel, and we drug it up to the, to the crush pad, and that's the lab that Robert worked out, Bob worked out of. Um, that's how we got started. We made wine under the stars um, in 1989, and I was his cellar rat. So I was, I was the, uh, uh, I just did what he told me to do. So that's how I got started. But he was really, he's, he, he eventually brought his sons in and, and to help. And, and of course, we had lots of volunteers. Lots of help from these investors. What did you think of the process of making wine when you did it the first time? You know, it's, uh, it's magical. Um, it, it, back then, the scale was small, but it wasn't that small. But it was, um, you know, even now, after all these years, I know less about it now than I did then. I mean, it's just, there's so much to learn. There's so many pieces of the, of the Oregon wine story that you could, you could spend a lifetime just learning about one aspect of it. You know, one of the things that um, I think people really enjoy hearing about is our soil. You know, the French call say terroir, right, of the earth. Uh, it's all those things that Mother Nature controls that we don't. Uh, but in our, and really, the French are right. It's soil, you know, serves at the foundation of that story. And Oregon has this amazing story to tell about soil. And um, so that's just, you know, that's just a little piece of, of, of what goes into growing and making wine. 
and it's just fascinating. So in a way, wine, Oregon wine, is, is it, it's liquid history. Um, and in this, and, and in the soil, the soil story is just unfolding. It was really in, it wasn't really, it, it's really in our lifetime that people just learned about these uh, ancient uh, kind of glacial floods and, the, and what a glacial erratic is. It's how the Allison got its name, named after the professor who plotted all of these pieces of white granite that shouldn't be here in the Willamette Valley. And, and still, we're learning more about how our soils were formed. The, the, um, I'm in the South Salem Hills. And uh, the family that settled there was the Jory family. I think they settled there, in, uh, what was it, maybe 19, 1848, I think, or something like that. They came across the Oregon Trail. And the geologists uh, wanted to honor that soil type that was taken from their name because of the Salem, South Salem Hills is full of this basalt uh, soil that's, what, over 25 million years old and, and is the perfect medium for various kinds, growing various kinds of fruits and nuts, including uh, Oregon wine grapes. They, um, they went to the legislature and they tried to get the legislature to call this soil type the state soil. And they didn't even get out of the hearing room because um, other farmers were, from around the state were going, well, what's wrong with our soil? Uh, why is their soil? I mean, this is like a small minority of soil in Oregon. Why are you calling this a state soil? How fair is that? So what these the geologists did before the next session is that they, they went around and talked to the conservative Republican legislators in Eastern Oregon, represent a lot of farmers, and they explained to them that the soil we have in the Willamette Valley that's on our slopes originated from their districts. At the, at the foot of the Blue Mountains, oozed out of this big crack in the ground, and then followed the path of least resistance, which was the Columbia River that had carved itself into the ground, going downhill to the west. And the, and the way that we learned about the age of our soil in the Salem Hills was from the work of Nazi U-boat captains. Because uh, when the uh, Department of Defense was going, oh my God, we're we're not getting enough bauxite, uh, or you know, barged in, because the U-boats were sinking all the barges of bauxite that were coming to the United States, so they put out the word to, um, to the land grant colleges, ask all the geology professors, hey, go see if you can find some bauxite. Well, they found it in two places in the United States. They found it in Tennessee, and they found it in the Willamette Valley of Oregon in the Salem Hills. So Reynolds Metals came down and bought up all the tops of the hillsides in the South Salem Hills so that they could mine this bauxite. And fortunately, the war ended before they had to do that. Strip mine, right? But that's how we knew that that particular flow of basalt that came from the Blue Mountains was the first flow into the Willamette Valley because that's where the bauxite was formed. And so this piece of property that I first bought 
right? I bought in an auction. Um, and in the, in the uh, deed is a requirement that if the Department of Defense needs that bauxite, they get to come get it. How about that? Well, Reynolds Metals hung on to that land all the way up until the early, kind of mid-1990s, when they finally gave up the ghost thinking, there's just no way that we're going to strip mine this ground. So they, Reynolds Metals found a foe greater than Nazi U-boat captains, and that's Oregon environmentalists. And so that's why so much of the Salem Hills wasn't, didn't have all these McMansions built on it. It's because Reynolds Meadows was hanging on to this for that long, hoping that they would get aluminum out of that bauxite. So you come up to the winery and you're going to see all these really funny looking rocks. And they're, some of them are really big and they're formed actually in the soil. So how it gets to a soil story is that under certain conditions of temperature and rainfall, the, the soluble minerals are washed away and the electrical charge of ferrous oxide and alumina and uh, titanium and zirconium is attracted together to form these really funny looking rocks that look like they're from the moon. And, and so that means that the rest of the medium in which those vines grow in is growing in a very unusual soil condition which we think contributes to that particular attributes of aroma and flavor in the wine. Now, I could spend, what, all day just on that one subject alone. And, and of course, you've probably heard, you know you've heard the Missoula Lake floods, right? Which, of course, now we get to uh, tell this just unbelievable story about this cataclysmic event. But now we're even learning more that maybe that's not really the end of the story. Now we're learning that the younger Dryas likely produced far more flooding than the Missoula Lake floods, which actually followed. And, and you know, you go up to the, you know, eastern Washington and you see, you know, all that land that was scarred. And then you do the math on the volume that came out of the Missoula Lake flood and you got to scratch your head and go, there's not enough volume here to do all this. So there's a bigger story yet. There's a bigger story yet to our soil than just that so soil. So one of the things that I enjoy doing here at this vineyard is just like Easter egg hunting, because you can walk down the vine rows and you can you see kind of a clot that's maybe bigger than a clot, and you can kick it, and sure enough, it's a it's a piece of white granite mm -hmm. that you can tell that maybe the you know the disc or something nicked. And you can see the white granite gleaming through the stone. They're all over. So when you chose the original site, the South Salem site, uh, at first when you went to the auction, what were your initial impressions of the land that you had? And as you watched it develop in the 1980s, what, what did you find? You know, the thing that I think um, we did um, as, as early wine growers was we were trying to find just the right sites for Pinot Noir. And we weren't thinking really very much about how to sell the wine. So if you look at where Myron Redford put his vineyard in the Amity Hills, or where Bill Fuller selected and planted Tualatin up, you know what, west of Banks, um, 
or even Dan Duchesne, you know, Dan and Helen Duchesne over um, uh, Dallas. A lot of these early growers were just looking for just that perfect piece of ground. And for me, I, I was doing that as well. There was a very uh, old Vinifa vineyard that was there uh, called Sunnyside Vineyard. Um, Lucy Wasniewski, I don't know if you've ever talked to her, but she was the one who bought that vineyard from a doctor who planted it. So we knew, and Myron was making great Pinot Noir from that vineyard, so we knew that South Salem had something going. But the other thing that attracted me was um, it was between two interchanges. And I thought, well, we're going to have to sell this wine. So locating there in the South Salem Hills on a freeway, in, between two freeway interchanges on a freeway frontage road was probably one of the keys to our success. We're the most visited tasting room in Oregon. We have, what, you know, over 11,000 wine club members, over 26,000 wine enthusiast investors. And I'm thinking that location probably helped. Um, but there's lots of places in Oregon you can plant and grow great vines. In fact, now they're planting them on the north-facing slopes in the Dundee Hills, where it's a little cooler. And probably wiser now, given what we're learning. I really took you off on a tangent on that one, didn't I? It's fantastic. That's, that's the whole point. Um, tell me about, then, obviously, the 1980s were, were a pretty monumental decade for Oregon wine. There was a lot of growth, a lot of kind of key moments in that decade. Tell me about, from your perspective, what you saw at the, at the kind of the outset of your, your wine journey there um, for the growth of the industry and for the growth of Pinot Noir specifically. The, um, I think the thing that, that had a big impact uh, on Oregon was when the Irie Pinot Noir 1978 vintage uh, placed so highly in the competition, in what's kind of referred to as the Paris Olympiad competition. And then later, um, the next year, 1980, that those wines being judged again by, you know, baffled, you know, winemakers from Bone. And uh, Robert Duran was the one who organized that second tasting. And I think in part in disbelief, I think if you really get underneath the hood of what really happened, of why there was a second tasting, was because they didn't really accept the, think the results of the first one. How did this Oregon Pinot Noir perform so well? And of course, as you know, it, it scored even higher. I think it came in something like second place in the, um, next to, a, I think, a Grand Cru. So um, that, I think, was, you know, really got people's attention because the second tasting was covered by, you know, the wine writers who were curious about what's going on. And then the second thing that happened in the 80s was the 1985 was the, uh, the Oregon winemakers kind of worked up enough courage to um, challenge the French to a good old Western shootout in downtown New York City at the, at the wine center. And they were intrigued by this uh, challenge. 
And the Oregon winemakers picked a really good vintage, the 1983 vintage, in which to, uh, to have um, the competition be judged. And I think that there were seven positions in that competition, and Oregon took the top five. Wow. Now, that was covered by the wine press, and that's got people's attention. Then Robert drew in. You know, we go out, we go to see him, then he comes now and announces that he's purchased land not far away from the Irie Vineyard up on Brayman Orchards Road, and we're off to the races. The, um, the thing that probably had the biggest effect, though, well, there are two things. It was the kind of things in popular culture. So you think about, well, what role did we really play in all of this? Probably very little. Because, uh, as you know, that was the, it was really the, one of the major producers for uh, um, 60 Minutes leaned over the fence talking to his neighbor about wine and learning about uh, what's happening in Bordeaux and about how the French you know, have such lower levels of cardiovascular disease even though they smoke like chimneys and eat all this fatty food and party all night. How is this possible? And so this, you know, they were intrigued, sent their cameras over to Bordeaux, and we got in, what, 1991? You know, this short little clip in 60 minutes called The French Paradox? Bam. The whole world of wine changed. It went from white dominant consumption to red worldwide. And then, what, it was uh, October, what, 25th or something, or 24th, uh, 2004? was the showing in kind of second-rate movie theaters uh, sideways. And um, that's when we, you know, Pinot Noir was like a tiny fraction of the American wine palette. So those are, you know, those are a couple of things that happened um, uh, that, that had, um, we had nothing to do with, really, and that really, I think, created so much opportunity. That combined, actually, with, um, the, the, the beginning of what all of us in the world are suffering from, which is the changing temperatures, how much carbon is in the atmosphere. But what happened in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley, is generally speaking, uh, temperatures got warmer, yields got higher, the economics improved, the vintages got better, and now, of course, we're dealing with the variability in the weather because of the highs and lows, like 2010, 2011 were the wettest and coldest. Uh, 2020 was the lowest bloom we ever had in our history. 38% below average was 2020 because it rained during bloom. So now we're dealing with all of these you know, you know, exaggerated uh, weather events. But those, those things which we probably have, well, we don't have anything to do with really, are the things that most likely influenced the success of the industry the most. But it wouldn't be, I don't think we would be where we are without what Cole Danauer talked about, wrote about. When he talked about Oregon Tewa, he went beyond the, what the French talked about. He said it's the people. He said it's the attitude of the people. It's the attitude of Oregon winemakers and wine growers that he thought was the most important element of Oregon terroir. And if you look at it now, 
in how people are making judgments about what they purchase and what they consume, he was right. Because the values of collaboration, authenticity, transparency, vulnerability, fidelity, respect for each other, kindness toward each other, all of those things that brought the, these winemakers together in a collaborative spirit, um, I think really appeals to people. So people aren't just making choices based upon price and value, quality. They're making choices now on values. Do these producers reflect my point of view, how I believe we should conduct ourselves? That is becoming more and more important. So I'm holding out hope for um, natural cork. Now, a lot of my colleagues went to screw caps in desperation because of the um, trichloranosol that was in natural cork, frankly, through a lot of bad practice, which the cork growers have fixed. But uh, we need to get people back to natural cork because those cork forests in the Mediterranean are the lung of the Mediterranean. There's over, what, 10 million acres of cork trees. And if we don't continue to um, choose products that are stopped or enclosed with natural cork, those communities will lose the economic underpinnings of what sustains them. And those trees will not be looked after. So, and then plus they're losing a very important habitat as a result of people moving to screw caps. Well, I think that eventually people are going to understand the connection between the amount of carbon in the air and how much trees, how many trees we're growing. And we need to go back to cradle to cradle. In other words, we need to go back to using products that are truly sustainable. And um, so I've got to get these winemakers back on board with natural cork. But there are things we can do. Billions of corks are used each year. Billions of enclosures are available to be used with natural cork. And yet, um, the, the demand for natural cork is weakening because aluminum screw caps are cheaper. So how did I get you all the way over on that one? <laughs> we were talking about values. So values, for sure. Uh, tell me about the, for you, obviously, there's a lot to cover with the growth of Wyoming Valley Vineyards. I'm going to get into some specifics a bit later. But for you, tell me about the key moments for you, the key sort of uh, milestones in the growth of the brand and the growth of the company over the years. What were the moments that stand out to you as monumental for Wyoming Valley Vineyards specifically? You know, you can go a lot farther with more fuel. And, you know, the first part of it was having a one of the advantages that Napa and Sonoma had was that they had a, 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 a kind of a, a business community that was built to support them. One of the challenges the Oregon wine industry had was it had no such business um, community. It didn't even have graduates that could make wine or grow grapes or do all the other things that you need to do in the wine industry. And now those things are just getting built, really. 
Um, and in, that includes the professional services that will help wineries grow, and it includes the financial services that help wineries grow. So I think the thing that has really fueled our industry has been, um, you know, that ecosystem that um, supports and makes possible an industry. And Oregon State University and Chemeketa Community College and, uh, you know, other institutions have now risen to that. And we're lucky. Um, for Willamette Valley Vineyards, it's always some element that enables it or r restrains it. Right now, it's people. Uh, we're a hospitality organization in many ways. We have over 400 employees. I never imagined we'd have over 400 employees. Um, and most of those are in the hospitality side of our business. In, in 10 years, we went from selling about, well, about 12% of our revenue was direct to consumer 10 years ago, 12%. Today, it's 50% on over a $40 million right, annual revenue. So that means there's a lot of people right, selling a bottle at a time or a glass at a time. But if you go back and you look at the industry and what are those key things that happened that created the opportunity for growth and that resulted in growth. The, our industry has, has really been created and enabled by a fabric of public policy. Without, because we're so heavily regulated in so many different ways, it's actually the rules and the changing of the rules that created what we are today. Like when we, we talked about where do we get the research and promotion money? We got it through the legislature. And we got continued support from the legislature for Oregon State University. Where did we get... Um, the permission to ship our wine to consumers. I don't know if many people know this, but that whole thing started in the Oregon State Capitol. There were about seven representatives, seven legislatures, seven different state legislatures that met at the Oregon State Capitol to form a compact, to agree with each other that they wouldn't enforce their um, state alcohol laws for excise taxes so that those states' wineries could ship to each other lawfully. That's how it started. The whole United States shipping of wine started inside the Oregon State Capitol building in a meeting. Now, we needed it, so I was definitely involved in doing that because I needed to ship wine to my, to my shareholders that were dotted all over the country. Well, I'd take the seven states to start with, so it was a seven-state compact that really started that whole thing. Then, then really, the thing that the biggest thing that probably happened was when a grower who was becoming a winemaker in Jackson County, he wanted to build a winery on his vineyard, and so he went to Jackson County's county commission, you know, to the their land use authorities and said, "I want to build this winery on my vineyard," and they said, "Yeah, great idea." Well. This guy's neighbor, who lived in Rhode Island, 
wrote a letter objecting to his conditional use permit to build his winery on his vineyard land. And this poor guy spent, I don't know, three years and almost over $200,000 in legal fees to overcome the land use obstacles. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Oregon, and he won. But by that time, he was out of money and, and discouraged, but he did win. Well, I took that case to the Oregon legislature, and I think this was in 1989. And I laid it out in front of the Oregon legislature. I said, look what happened. Your land use policies that protect farmland are also preventing farmland from being used for a higher value purpose. And so in 1989, we got the legislature to make wineries a permitted use on farmland. Boom. That was the single greatest change in public policy that enabled us to locate wineries out where we were growing the grapes, which did a couple things. One is it made it a lot more possible to really do. It improved the quality considerably. Uh, it, it enabled people who were small business people to flourish in that way, to live there, make wine, grow grapes, and serve the customer. And the customer, wine tourism, of course, culinary tourism, it, it, you know, exploded right along with it. And that allowed people to sell their product directly for a full margin to the customer, which then financially supported the industry. So that's probably, and had the bill not passed, my neighbor would have likely been successful in objecting to my conditional use permit. So I did have a self-interest, obviously. My neighbor was there testifying against the bill. Uh, didn't, didn't help that she served as the secretary to the last, I think, two governors. So she was very influential. <laughs> but we still overcame it. And, and that, I think, is the single greatest thing. But for Willamette Valley Vineyards, I would say that the, it's the fuel. So organizing Oregon wine enthusiasts as owners. I did that uh, back in, in 1988, 1989, uh, through the sale of common stock through 1991 ran the company on that capital base all the way up to the year 2015, where we went and used a preferred stock model. So we had a NASDAQ listing we earned on the common back in 2004. We went and got a, another NASDAQ listing for the preferred uh, in 2016 or so, qualified for the NASDAQ. That put our preferred stock funding strategy on a fast track because with the NASDAQ listing, we don't have to continue to blue sky at each state we sell a stock in. So we have already sold something like $45 million worth of preferred stock. We have, what, 26,000 shareholders that are drink wine. And um, the shareholders last year authorized our pool of, comp of preferred stock to grow from 10 million shares to 100 million shares. So our potential capitalization for Willamette Valley Vineyards, our treasury has over a half a billion dollars of um, preferred stock in it. So now the issue is, can we find wine enthusiasts who want to be an owner of a winery, receive the benefits of ownership, 
to control the continue the business. So that's what we're doing now. We're actually selling preferred again. Uh, it's um, you know twenty two cents a share dividend, and we ask the shareholders to please consider taking their dividend in the form of a wine credit. And most of them do. So it's like um, fusion. The um, the investors are literally drinking themselves to profitability because the um, the they, last year they bought six million dollars worth of wine. The investors. If you subtract the cost of goods, you subtract the cost of selling it to them. You have million three million dollars left over to run the business. So the that form of capitalization is. Um, like perpetual motion. There's nothing like it in the world. Nothing. That's wild. So tell me, we want to talk about more of the kind of the recent growth. Obviously, in recent years, we have Domain Willamette. We have properties around, around the state and or elsewhere. So tell me about some of the projects that you've uh, endeavored on in the last decade or so, um, new properties, new, new places, and how you've sort of chosen to grow the brand in that way. Well, you know, our ambition is to um, tell the Oregon story through wine. And Oregon, you know, what's the what's the tenth largest state geographically in in the nation? It has as many different growing regions as does France. Um, and so we're on a path to plant grapes and make wine from those unique. Um, American viticultural areas, and we're just going to keep doing that. We have done something a little unusual, and that is we are making a little California wine. Because the reason why, frankly, is because California requires if you have a if you want to sell wine direct in California, you got to the you got to sell fifty percent of it grown and made in California. So it's pretty interesting. Probably isn't constitutional under the. Commerce Clause, but I don't have the time to fool with that. So we do make some, we make wine in California so we can have a winery license in California. So we can operate, we operate kind of a mini winery um, in Folsom, California, which is the home of probably the most famous vineyard in the Western United States in the late 1800s, Natoma Vineyard, that was dug up for gold. And so we created, we recreated the Notoma brand. So we were making wine there. We're selling it there in the Willamette Wineworks in Folsom, California, where we also sell our wines. But other than that, we're growing grapes, as you know, in different parts of the state. Um, probably the biggest investment outside of the Willamette Valley is in Walla Walla, where we have uh, um, one vineyard planted in the Savane, another vineyard we can plant in the Savane, next to Drew Bledsoe's vineyard, uh, McQueen Vineyard. His vineyard's called McQueen. And um, then we also have vineyard land where we're growing in the Rocks District of Milton Free Water. So, but there's, there's a lot to do yet. Obviously, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Betty O'Brien and, and you mentioned Bill Fuller. Uh, and obviously, those, their, their, their places are now part of your portfolio as well. So tell me about when you had relationships like that, how you went about sort of bringing them under your umbrella? Well, you know, the 
uh, just that was probably my first big break is when Bill Fuller um, wanted to retire. And I got I was lucky to get the call. And um, I told Bill when he called me because he knew I always wanted just some of his fruit. He, he was doing amazing things. You know, he's people I don't know really know just how much Bill Fuller has done for our industry. Just because he was located in the Dundee area, he wasn't located there. He he kind of didn't get known like people around Dundee did. But not only I met him when he was president of the Oregon of the Oregon Wine Growers Association early on. He put the two organizations together, the Southern Oregon, uh, which was called the Oregon Wine Growers Association, and then uh, which is located out of Roseburg, and then the one here. He put them together in one group. Um, Don Byard was the president before that, and then Bill Fuller finished the job years ago. Um, but Bill, you know, he had 83 acres of amazing vines on their own roots. And um, I said, Bill, I says, there's no way I can afford to buy your vineyard. But I says, well, um, would you consider merging with me? taking stock in Willamette Valley Vineyards, and we go to the bank and borrow the money so you can retire. That worked. But he had to take most of his value in stock. So he's a shareholder in Willamette Valley Vineyards. He retired 17 years later, he came back, and he is now 85 years old, and he's making wine in our cellar. Amazing. What's that been like? He's just amazing. He's, he's, you know, people, the older people get, the less um, of a filter they have. So um, he tells, you know, you got to be careful about him being around customers because, you know, he tells some stories. Um, and so, but, you know, what can you do? We're actually having him present here. Um, so he does, he still does presentations for us. Amazing guy. Um, I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to work with him and to benefit from what he created at Tualatin. And that's really what gave our, the quality of our wines a real boost was his fruit. And then of course, we got his people, Afrin Loeza, whom you interviewed in, I think, March or something this year. Um, and Efren, uh, he's been managing our vineyards ever since. He didn't want to. I don't know if he told you that story. He did. Okay. Yeah, I talked him into it. He blamed, he blamed you for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but he's still doing it. Um, and it's challenging now. Challenging more than ever to, um, to grow by hand a large um, agricultural crop. The um, Betty, you know, of course, you know I met her in graduate school. And um, she served on our board of directors for a number of years as one of our first, you know, she was part of that tasting group. I was telling you about it at Lamb Graduate School. And um, so she was, was instrumental in helping design and grow Willamette Valley Vineyards. But, but we didn't, she sold her fruit to a lot of different winemakers and wisely so, because uh, she sold her fruit to some extraordinary winemakers, uh, including, um, you know, Ken Wright. And um, when they wanted to retire, we had to compete for that lease. We won the lease. We won the, the right to farm that land. And I didn't know this at the time, but Ken Wright had quite a long contract 
So I ended up having to grow fruit for Ken Wright. But I learned, right? I learned. Um, and, um, and now, we, of course, we have that fruit for our own. And he was right. That particular block of Pinot Noir really performs for us. Um, but Betty, uh, you know, Betty and Dick, um, after we negotiated that lease, several years later came to me and they said, um, you know, this lease is going to outlive us. So here's what you, we want you to do. We want you to have this value of this vineyard appraised at the time of our passing. And we want you to take the net value of our estate, which is the value of this vineyard. And half of it goes to Schmeckett Community College's wine program. And the other half of it goes to Oregon State University's viticultural program and extension service. Now, that, that is the, that's the Oregon character. They're giving back their entire life's work to higher education to support young people. That's extraordinary. So what we've done is we've done several things to dedicate or to honor them. Uh, one of them is to, um, is to name a wine after them, the O'Brien's, the O'Brien wine. The other thing is, is we actually created a label called Ilton, a separate label that um, Isabel Munier helped us get started. I don't know if you know Isabel. Her husband actually helps us with our sparkling wine, Andrew Davis. Um, and she made for a number, several years when we started, she made the wine at the Carlton Wine Studio. Um, which we don't do that anymore because we've outgrown it, outgrown the capacity to do that. But um, that Elton wine, it's a Chardonnay and a Pinot Noir, is uh, the symbol of that wine is one of the pieces of art that Dick and Betty had made for them. It's, it's in their gorgeous garden. And I don't know if you've been in that garden. Okay, you have. And our plan is, is to build um, a tasting room right adjacent to that garden and to have some of the work that Dick has carved to be included in that tasting room. So that's coming. But first we had to get this thing up on its feet. Well, let's talk about that. Obviously, we've, we've, we've all seen Domain Willamette taking shape over the years here. It's amazing to see it open now. Tell me about this place. Why here and, and how did you, what made you decide to do this project uh, at this time? Well, um, for over 25 years, we knew we needed to be here in the Dundee Hills. The, the same thing happened, you know, in California. Um, you know, if you, if you think about how we started in the Oregon wine industry, like I told you, it didn't really matter where we were, where we were located. We just wanted to grow great grapes. And our big first organizing thing that we did as an industry was create a map that we could give to consumers to find out where we were. That was our big thing we all organized to get around to do. That was our big job. And um, what happened, though, is as a business cluster formed, and you could fly from Chicago to the Portland airport, rent a car, and come out here to the Newburgh, Dundee area, you're going to run out a weekend before you get a chance to go anywhere else. So a true business cluster formed. 
not just for consumers, but also wine writers. Used to be, uh, Bob Parker would, he would um, drive around to all the vineyards. This is before he went into business with his uh, brother-in-law, Michael Edsel. He would drive around, so he'd come down and see us. Um, well, they don't need to drive around any, anywhere anymore except just come here. So we, we knew that we need to be here. The other thing we wanted to do was we wanted to um, make sparkling wine. Because we believe the Willamette Valley has an incredible story to tell about sparkling wine. And we needed a vineyard where we could get aroma and flavor like no other. Well, you're picking at 17 and a half bricks for sparkling wine. To make a still wine, you're picking at 24 and a half bricks. Hopefully, if you get really the sweet spot of bricks level. Well, at 17 and a half to 18 and a half bricks, you've got pretty immature fruit. So you have to have a vineyard site where you get early development of aroma and flavor in that fruit. And this is exactly where you get it. It's right here on this slope of the Dundee Hills. So that's what, what brought us here. And it's well located. This piece of property was available because of a problem that the growers had they couldn't solve. Years ago, I think this was in the 30s, the, uh, the highway division went around and bought the access rights from the farmers because they didn't want the farmers entering the high, Highway 99. So they, they purchased from the farmers their commercial rights to access Highway 99. So you could drive on it to farm, but you couldn't drive on it to sell the consumer anything. So when these, the grower originally planted these vines here, he didn't think that through. So he could never get a permission from the Oregon Department of Transportation to have consumer traffic commercially access this property. He was trapped. That's why this vineyard sat here while this whole Dundee Hills developed around it. And everybody drove past us thinking, wow, why doesn't anybody do anything with that? Well, you couldn't. So he actually went to the extent of building a winery in the style of a French, um, kind of a French family winery where the family lives upstairs, the winery's below, right down on the next to the road. In fact, he built it, he, he built it too close to the highway as well. That was another problem. Um, but he couldn't access it. He couldn't access it. So um, that's how this property was available. Dick Erath was the fellow who clued us into the opportunity that existed here. But that's our specialty is solving complicated problems. And so we just had to figure out how to convince the Oregon Department of Transportation to give us commercial access to the property that they had purchased from the farmer back in the 1930s. So that's quite a story all in of itself. But we did it. Governor helped. And, and we rolled the dice on that because we had to buy this property before we could solve that puzzle. And there's a lot of other people like, um, I don't know if you know Bill Cross, ever heard of Bill Cross? But Bill Cross and I worked together in the Oregon legislature 
for over 40 some years. Uh, he uh, was the lobbyist for Common Cause back in the late 70s. He became the executive director of the Oregon Restaurant and Beverage Association, where he and I worked together. And then he became later our governmental affairs director, our governmental affairs representative. His wife was my very first administrative employee. My very first, she worked out of my trailer that I lived in up on the property. Um, and Bill still works for us today. And Bill Cross had a lot to do with navigating how we got to where we are today here. So our, we wanted to build um, a symbol for Oregon um, for sparkling wine. So this winery is dedicated to sparkling wine, biodynamic farming, um, and to tell that story. So you go into this, so, and, and really it's, I told you when we were walking over here, it's my wife that's responsible for all of this. She's the one who spent six years planning, designing, and building all of this, along with a lot of other people, but she was the leader. And she did an amazing job. Do you feel like so far, obviously it hasn't been open that long yet, do you feel like so far it is accomplishing what you wanted to do in terms of sparkling wine? Are you telling the sparkling wine story you were hoping to tell? It's still early. It's still really early. Um, we've been open to the owners since September. So we haven't even come up on a year yet. And sparkling wine, we have been making it, as you know, for some time in order to have a, some wine to sell here. So Andrew Davis has been helping us with that for some time through his company, Radiant. Um, you know, I think in 25 years, you could ask me that question. We'll see how we're doing. <laughs> the, the sparkling wine industry um, is very long-term. So really, the, someone else will have this baton in their hand that will probably answer that question for you sometime later. But I think we got a really good start. And I think for the industry as a whole, it's just getting started. There's what, 790 wineries in the Willamette Valley, something like that. Over a thousand in the state of Oregon. And we're just getting started. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, leadership in the industry has been a big part of your career even before you started with the wine brand. Um, tell me about sort of service to the industry, obviously, uh, Oregon Wine Board, Live, things like that. Tell me about your role in some of the organizations as they've come about and some of the, some of the kind of, some of the accomplishments you've been a part of that you're proud of with uh, kind of service to the industry organizations. You know, it's a, it's, I think everybody's kind of taken their turn you know, at providing um, support to the industry. Um, I, was, I had the good fortune of serving as the president of the Oregon Wine Growers Association when we changed the law with the Oregon Wine Board. And then of course I had the unfortunate, I think, probably task of getting that law passed, which wasn't easy because we had, we had a lot of opposition. Um, not a lot of opposition, but we had opposition where, uh, where it really counted, like in the Ways and Means Committee and so on. In other words, we had opposition where it was, we had choke points. 
that we had to, to deal with. And it was my responsibility to get that bill passed. And we did. And so that created the Oregon Wine Board, which is a very unusual organization. It's an independent, uh, semi-independent state agency um, where we were able to consolidate really the industry's resources and focus. And I, and I think really greatly improved our chances as an industry, despite the, you know, every once in a while somebody's not happy about something. Maybe some region of the state's not getting as much attention as they want to receive, that kind of thing. Um, but we've had, we've had always had really good leaders. And, I, and I'm really, you know, I, I think Tom Donowski, who's now retiring, has done an excellent job. Um, it's a tough job he's got. It's like herding cats. And um, he's had a great staff. And we've had lots of challenges over the years. You know, one of the things you brought up to me was um, the challenge to Oregon's um, labeling laws. And um, boy, that was, that was something. You know, the, um, got a story for you, Kinsey. A story that people don't know. So, the story they do know is that they know that a California winemaker, um, a young, very young California winemaker who had an awful lot of money at a very young age, age of 31, 32 years old, he sold the brand his father gave him for $315 million to Constellation. No winery, no vineyard, just the brand. And so he decided he wanted to make Oregon wine. But he wanted to make it in California. So he bought fruit in Oregon and he made the wine in California. And then on his labels and packaging materials and website, illegally used the Oregon American Viticultural Area designations. Now the advantage to him was he was able to price position his product higher because he could make attributions to his product of which the grapes he didn't have to pay for. So uh, the industry wasn't happy. And of course, it fell to me to have to lead the effort to get the state and federal regulators to pay attention to this problem and do something about it. Well, here's you can read all about that story and how he eventually was um, woodshedded by the state and federal government and how he had to stop what he was doing. But here's the part of the story that you don't know. He got so unhappy with me that he went to the Federal Trademark Office um, and he filed to um, cancel our federal trademark rights to Willamette Valley Vineyards and Willamette as a brand. Now, believe it or not, you could actually do something like that. You got enough money, you got some Philadelphia lawyers, you can, you can do that. So we had to defend our trademark. And I spent well over $600,000 in legal fees just to defend our trademark before the Federal Trademark Office. And I think, I think he thought that we didn't have the capacity to do that. You know, that, you know, that if you're generally in those kind of environments, you've got 
the person wins who has the most money. But I don't think he thought that we had the capacity to defend our Mercs. And um, he finally gave up, canceled his challenging registrations, and gave up a brand he was making in California called Willamator Journal. Yes, Willamator Journal, because he wanted to somehow get close to the AVA with a different name. And we finally uh, prevailed, but that was a, that was a knockdown, drag out, bloody fight. So that's then that's a story that hasn't been told. So that's the one. That's but you know the thing about Oregon is that um, if we didn't take a stand and didn't protect um, our ge the, the integrity of our geographic designations, we were in for even more trouble. And as time goes on. Our geographic designations like the Dundee Hills, Ribbon Ridge, um, Yamhill Carlton, Yola Amity Hills, those geographic designations will become extremely important as time goes on. And so we have a duty as industry to make sure that, um, that they're used lawfully. I know the recent, the, the PGI status that was passed recently, I know it plays a role in that as well. Yes, it helps. Yeah, it helps. Um, Harry Peterson Nedry is one of our industry's greatest leaders. Uh, he's like a renaissance man. And um, we're lucky to have him in our industry because he's the one who has stewarded that issue for years. Well, the other obviously recent um, sort of recent I think that it comes to mind when I think of your service industry is the Solidarity Project uh, after the fires in, uh, I believe that was 2018. Um, tell us a little bit about that uh, as another kind of uh, protecting Oregon moment for, for you and for the brand, for the Willamette Valley brand. Well, the, the thing that got us involved was one of our growers, um, the Moore family in the Rogue Valley, uh, Trouty just passed away just recently, uh, Don previously, um, so Michael, their son, now runs the, runs the, the business. But what happened was um, this same fellow, uh, Joe Wagner, who was infringing upon Oregon's AVAs, uh, canceled his contracts a week before harvest, substantially uh, for smoke tank. Although he was fairly unhappy with Oregon because it was only months earlier that we challenged his use of those AVAs. So um, we went down, we organized a group of um, winemakers to figure out how to rescue some of that fruit. And, it, and that's what started the Solidarity Project, which is really um, Jason Lett, you know, who contributed capacity and made wine um, the, you know, King Estate, uh, who made capacity to make wine, um, J.P. Valet, uh, Hinman, uh, Sylvan Ridge. Um, it was just a wonderful group effort. And, um, and we got, you know, the governor got involved to try and figure out how to promote a brand because we had to create a brand. Ed called me and said, Jim, we got to do something, and we don't have enough of our own brands that can take this kind of volume. We have to create a brand. 
And so we talked about, well, it's a kind of a solidarity effort. He says, yeah, let's call it Oregon Solidarity. So it was his son, one of his sons actually designed the label. And, um, and then we, we had most of the responsibility in figuring out how to put the wine together and uh, bottle the wine and get it sold. And uh, that was quite an effort because it was quite a bit of volume. And we had to get chain, the chain buyers and, and the restaurants all behind it. And it was very successful and the wine was delicious. Which was proof that those contracts were canceled for reasons other than smoke team. So I want, I'm curious to kind of talk about sort of the industry in general. You've talked about some of the changes you've seen. What are the biggest differences? What are the biggest evolutions in Oregon wine that you've seen? And what does the industry look like to you now as you look at it in 2023? I think the probably one of the biggest evolutions is ownership. The industry started with emigrating winemakers who were really um, aspiring winemakers. I mean, you know, David Adelsheim, you know, worked at a bank and waited tables and turned out to be one of the greatest thought leaders and leaders of our industry and is even now playing an important role in our industry. You know, Dick Erath was... Uh, was an electrical engineer. Um, you know, Dick Ponzi was a mechanical engineer for Walt Disney. I mean, um, Bill Fuller was really the only, in that first group, was really the only pra practicing winemaker, was the only non-family member of, the, of the, the Martini family in the Louis Martini winery. And now look at it. Now it's, um, you know, we have, you know, Argyle, which is uh, owned by, you know, the, one of the largest brewers in the world at, um, out of Japan. We have Italian, French interests that are um, extremely sophisticated, who have acquired or actually created their own capacity, like Robert Duran did with his family. Um, and then we have even, you know, the Jackson family here with a significant investment. So I would say that, um, and then you see like, you know, the Foley organization with their level of sophistication uh, here in Oregon. And, and I'm just getting started, you know, listing off all those uh, world-renowned producers of wine. And that, their presence has yet to, to really get traction, full traction. Once their presence really ceases, um, once it really kind of grips the market and grips what's possible here to grow and make, wow. Um, it's really kind of remarkable what all these small winemakers were able to do through collaboration. But now it's got some real horsepower. So I would say that's probably one of the one of the biggest things. Um, the other is, is that learning more about different parts of Oregon and what it can do. I mean, Harvey Steinman, who was the uh, editor of the Wine Spectre magazine, called the Rocks District of Milton Freewater the most intriguing and likely the most um, valuable AVAs in the United States. Think of that. And it's just beginning there. 
So we really do live in a very special place. And I think we're just beginning to see what she can do. Well, on that note, what do you see coming next for the Oregon wine industry at, at large? And are there specific things you're hopeful for or fearful of uh, in the for the future of Oregon wine? You know, yeah, I watched uh, one, one of the movies, one of the big movies that they did of um, the Star Trek, one of the big remakes of the big movies was uh, in the captain's uh, room, there was a, a wine bottle sitting on his table in his room, a Bordeaux-style bottle with a cork that had been pulled. And I actually think um, that the Oregon wine industry um, is really part of a very long and valued tradition in our lives where it's kind of the WD-40 of um, socialization and personal engagement and uh, enrichment in people's lives. So I think that um, we're on a really long path and have just started. And I do believe that we will learn how to be better stewards of the planet. And in the process of learning how to do that, even value what we have in Oregon more. And people's curiosity, uh, their interest in culinary tourism will bring them here. So I actually think that beyond our lives, Oregon will take its place among, among the finest wine growing regions in the world. Um, you know, I got a chance to um, learn a little bit about Tuscany. You know, Tuscany, you know, you know, long ago was, had all kinds of problems. Until the, they had economic problems, they had hunger, they had, um, you know, unkept community conditions, the homelessness. And the people of Tuscany said, we're gonna fix this. And so they had the spirit that we as Oregonians have. They, they got together, they established a fabric of public policies that made Tuscany into one of the greatest wine growing regions in the world, where it's one of the most visited and most revered. And the people in Tuscany by and large are pretty prosperous, including all the people who perform the services. Um, so that's in front of us. So for you personally, I'm curious, um, what would you start with this? If you were going to do it over again, what advice would you give to your past self as you were setting off on your wine journey? I have learned so many lessons. Um, I think I, I, I think I probably would have gone and worked with the masters in uh, Borgonia um, before I really set out. Mm -hmm. I could have probably saved myself some time. The, um, I've learned a lot about how to enter the market. Um, when we started, we didn't have any money. So we had to pay our bills from the get-go which meant that we sold the wines that 
required less cellar time early. And the, and the nicer wines had more cellar time we sold later. Well, Malcolm Gladwell was right. Blink. He was right. So the customers, wine enthusiasts, the first image they got of us was the wines that we could sell early. We needed the cash. Uh, people who are smarter than me, um, like the Evanstads, and had the capital to do it, released their fantastic Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays when they were ready. And that's how they entered the market. There's a lesson. You know, I've learned a lot about um, people. Um, and one of the, you know, here I am, I'm going to be 70 on the 27th, and it's going to be this long to figure this out. One of the things I learned was the high performers in your organization often lack confidence. And as a result, they overperform. They compensate for their lack of confidence. And so as an organization, you greatly benefit by these remarkable performers who really are dealing with an insecurity that's probably pretty deep. What I learned was these high performers often rise in organizations and they rise into positions of leadership. But someone who has a deep-seated insecurity becomes a danger in leadership. We, said, we see that in our country. Oh my God, are we paying for it? Oh my God, right? I don't care what part of the political spectrum you're on, we're paying for it. Um, the, and so that's one of the most powerful lessons I've learned, because now I need, I need a plan for succession. My wife and I are not selling this business. We have put our ownership of this company in trust, and the, the shares that we hold will be voted by the management who follows us. This, we intend this company to be a 1,000-year company and to serve the community and the people in it. And we want to make sure that the managers uh, have enough voting power of those shares so they can properly take care of the community and their employees and their families. And they're not bought or parceled out or, um, you know, look what's happening. You know, you see it right here in the Northwest of what's happening when companies are bought and sold. And, you know, what happens to, you know, the Louisa family? You know, so my view is that capitalists have got some problems, right? Well, we don't have to contribute to that. The people who helped create Willamette Valley Vineyards need to be served. Their families need to be served and protected. The only way to do that is to make sure that they can, that they have the power to do it. Um, and so um, we're hoping that we're kind of reaching beyond the grave here crossing our fingers that the employees don't ever sell this company. If they do, they won't benefit from the sale of the shares that are in trust. The shares that are in trust only serve them if they don't. So that's the plan. But, but, I, but I need to plan for the next round of leaders. And um, I've learned 
that if you're going to have key values that are industry values, vulnerability, admitting you're wrong, asking for help, transparency, all the cards are face up on the table. There's no hiding the ball. There's fidelity and truthfulness and authenticity in everything we do. Those things only come from leadership that is self-confident um, and, and, and has a healthy level of confidence. Boy, that's been one of my biggest lessons I've learned. So how do you, how do you, have to, how do you figure out how to pick those people? And how do you figure out how those deep-seated insecurities, um, which you can't cure? We have, you know, we had a we have a former president that's a classic narcissist. Look at how dangerous he is. Um, and it and it comes in different forms, right? It comes in all different forms. But um, there's a lesson for you. Didn't expect that from you, did you, Mackenzie? <laughs> <laughs> what else are you looking ahead to? What, are, what else is on the horizon for you, personally or professionally? Is there more for Willamette Valley that you're looking forward to? Is there more personally that you're looking forward to? I need to get this company in the hands of its next stewards, its next leaders. That's really what my duty is now. I've been here 43 years, and, and, um, and we do have, there's a lot of great people in the company. But... Finding these leaders is going to be, you know, we do have uh, people who are expert and really good in their leadership roles. Um, we have a surprising number of women in our leadership roles. Um, they, you know, it's hard to make generalizations about gender, but, you know, collaboration is a key to success in our business and in our industry. And I think women in our business has, our industry has been traditionally very male dominated. And when you hire on the basis of successful performance, it's a self-perpetuating problem, right? So you have to go out, you have to get outside and find people who don't have those, you know, those credentials, that level of success and develop them if they're going to represent the community, women and people of color. And people who have different um, views of of life, right, and and uh, lifestyles. So so that we in, we do that intentionally. So we're very affirmative in how we recruit and develop people. So that's really probably the the next big thing is making sure that this company's leadership represents our community, um, represents who our customers are and represents really kind of a very accepting, positive part of life. You know, the, I think, Rich and McKinsey, the, these, this organization, uh, Oregon Wine Industry and this company, these are just vehicles for us to create models of conduct and behavior that serves our community and serves others. And it's really, how well do we use our time in doing that? If you were to, if someone were to ask you for advice or words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry today, what would you tell them? Show up with a resume and I'll put them to work.
Solid advice. <laughs> you know, there's, there, you, there's so many different uh, paths somebody could take in our industry. It used to be that it was just growing grapes or making wine. Well, you could have an expertise in IT. You could be an expert and love logistics. Uh, you could be, you know, a great graphic designer. Uh, you could be, you know, an incredible attorney. Um, I mean, if you look at all the different aspects of our industry and where we need support, it's incredible. You look at yourself. Look at McKinsey. We have professionals that do just what you do in our industry. So um, I'd say that we have a full palette of opportunity for people. And there's really no limit to our, um, the possibilities. There's over um, 15 million households in the United States that buy varietal wine at our price point. 15 million households in the United States that buy wine in our price points. That's just the United States. Well, what if, you know, 15 million, you know, bought a couple of cases of Oregon wine a year? That's, you know, 30 million cases, just the United States. We only have in our ownership, we've got about, um, about 12,000 households. We have 26,000 investors. That's, I think it's probably maybe more like 14,000 households. So that's just a fraction, right, of the 15 million households that are interested in wine and buy wine at our price point. So there's, it's the, there's no stopping us. Last question for you. Uh, what are you proudest of or what do you feel like is your greatest accomplishment? You know, I think it's, it's, that's still kind of a work in progress. Um, I, was, I, I think we have a duty uh, to be stewards and effective ones, effective stewards. When people start moving back to Cork, I might think like, yeah, this message might have gotten through, except it's not me delivering the message. I mean, you just turn on the television, see the next town that's burning up. We know we have to get the carbon out of our atmosphere. We know we have to. As simple a thing as just choosing the right products that we could use that support doing that. How hard could this be, right? But we still have to deliver that message. Um, this is biodynamic vineyard is intentional. We wanted to teach people about um, a, a form of farming that really serves them and serves all life. There's a powerful message there. People are curious. You know, originally it's kind of like, like voodoo. Well, no, not really. You know, we're, we're learning that, um, that everything is a form of energy and that the light that our vines receive and that, it's, that hits the ground and gets stored in the rocks and comes back up in a different form of energy into the vine, into the fruit, matters. Us understanding how to farm relative to those different light sources and the degree of that light really matters. That's what biodynamics is all about. 
and, and then doing things holistically so that we're not importing, you know, um, you know, chemical and other artificial forms of support for our vines in our agricultural activities so that it's holistic. But those are the things we want to teach. So I would say it's definitely a, a work in progress. So probably too early to be proud. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to <laughs> Mic drop. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories with us today, sharing your beautiful space with us. Well, thank you so much. We'll let you off the hook. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.